BFA BFA The Fiber Project Finance, Tech and Innovation Presented in collaboration with Quartz Africa Hello and welcome to The Gig Is Up A BFA global podcast on the future of work I'm your host, Damien Milverton In this series, we're going to take you inside the world of BFA Global's Fibre project, which has been working for the past four years to accelerate financial inclusion in emerging markets. We're going to talk to experts in finance, tech and development, explore the day-to-day experience of workers, entrepreneurs and startups in Kenya's capital, Nairobi, and give you a bird's eye view of how technology is transforming emerging economies and what the rest of the world can learn from them. The rise of the side hustle. Small businesses are huge drivers of the economy in the US and virtually every other country. In America, most businesses are small businesses and they account for between 60% and 80% of all employment. And who's behind them? Scrappy entrepreneurs, self-driven people, risk takers, young adults with a dream. But for all their individual grit, skill and determination, success really requires partners. Maybe an accountant, definitely a good lawyer. And how about somebody with money to invest or lend? In the early days, maybe that's a parent, maybe a rich aunt or a sibling. But sooner or later, that's likely to be a banker, or these days, maybe even a bank app. For small businesses in most parts of Africa though, there's little chance of getting a formal bank loan. They just don't have the kind of track record or financial history that a financial institution needs to be confident enough to lend. In many parts of the world, side hustling is a way of getting by and earning extra money in an economy that's largely informal and limited in the number of full-time jobs. Ask anyone in Kenya and almost certainly he or she will have a side hustle as an income generating strategy. And super platforms, a kind of platform of platforms, such as WhatsApp, Instagram, Facebook, Alibaba, and Jumia, are opening up even more opportunities for the informal economy, and in particular, for micro and small enterprises. My name is Luciane Wanjikumbugwa, and I work at a construction firm. And I also run my own small business where I import clothes for weddings, mostly. How I talk to my customers, mostly I start the conversation on Facebook. Someone was bringing in clothes and I would buy from them, mostly for my daughter. Then I would find people asking, where do you get such clothes? And I'd be like, I can get them for you. Then I realized I was losing a lot of money working through a third party. Then I got someone in China and then it was even more expensive for them to buy on my behalf. So I decided, let me just go on Alibaba and talk to someone directly. And then I was able to get a really good supplier who's been with me for like almost four years now. The first order I did was around almost 150000 I was really scared that I was going to lose the money. Then I asked my husband, I was like, okay, if we lose the money, we lose the money. So when I sent the money, she actually sent the clothes. So I think I got more trusting because the next time now I wasn't all afraid. But nowadays I prefer to use Alibaba itself to do the payment because they hold the payment until you receive the goods. So that's why it's safer than just sending the money directly to someone. Alibaba has changed things for me because on Alibaba, I'm actually making money. It's actually widening my platform. So I'm able to make money and interact with people. I would advise young people, old people, people who are bored, people who are busy to try and get another income. I mean, and Alibaba is a great place to start. I mean, even if you will not buy from Alibaba, you will get so many ideas. You will get so much input. It's worth the time. 
Micro and small enterprises, or MSEs, are businesses with less than 10 employees, but they are huge economic drivers. In developed markets, small businesses ride on top of an infrastructure that works. The roads are good, the post office delivers on time, and there are consumer protections. But in Africa, consumer trust in these institutions is still growing. Companies like Jumia can tap into the informal economy because they offer the kind of institutionalised support that MSEs have never had in the past. In our episode on The Last Mile, we spoke to Juan Seco, Jumia Chief Operating Officer, who explained the idea of Jumia Pay. Here he is again to talk about how Jumia works with MSEs. Jumia is a marketplace, and at core, what we want is to help our sellers to have more opportunities to sell in the markets that we are. So we know we have a lot of our sellers that are SMEs. That's the reality on the ground. The core of the economy in Africa is SMEs and sole entrepreneurs. And these are the guys that are selling on Jumia. What we are doing with Jumia and Jumia Financial Services is working together to see how we can help them grow. The bigger their business on Jumia, the bigger the offering also for our consumers, and it becomes a flywheel effect. When it comes to SME financing, we clearly saw a lack of financial inclusion for our SMEs. They came asking for us all the time, what can we do to help them in terms of financing? And what we realized very quickly is that there's no reason a seller that sells on Jumia that does a very significant business that he shouldn't be able to leverage that same data to access financial inclusion. And... We tried talking to banks and legitimizing some of that, and we realized very quickly that we needed to actively be there. And that's what we did with uh, the SME lending. We basically built a platform where sellers can legitimize themselves on Jumia. We come in the middle, we provide this data to the financial institutions that are partnering with us, and they get the data from us. So they know it's true, and they know that a seller that is making X on Jumia can you know, provide that as a guarantee of cash flows. So when consumers come to Jumia, they know that we have vetted these sellers. They know that we have you know, rules of operating in the marketplace. The same way we are trying to go to the financial institutions and tell them, you know, when you are financing one of these sellers, we are vetting them. We are telling you that the sales are real. We are telling you about their operational excellence, how committed they are to the platform, how long they've been on the platform. And it helps these sellers accelerate also the growth on Jumia because they are able to unlock working capital, which is not available in most of the markets where we are. Credit financing and collateralized credit financing, it's either very, very expensive or non-existent. And what we're trying to do is come right there at the nitty-gritty of the problem, which is we need to make it available. There's no reason that a seller should mortgage his whole life to access a small amount of capital. We spoke to a fashion designer with a small workshop space in Nairobi who started his own business because he loves making clothes. When Jimmy was younger, he saw an older tailor working on the street, sewing shirts and cutting patterns. He came across the man many times on his way to his office job, and he eventually asked if he'd teach him what he was doing. He never went back to his formal job. He's ambitious and passionate about his work, and platforms like Facebook provide a way for him to advertise his goods to a much broader market. My name is Jimmy Kibichi. I'm the founder of Kotap Ngureik, and I do fashion. I sell my stuff through Jumia and Facebook and Instagram. I got an order from another company and it was a lot of money. So I didn't have that money to start the, the work. So I had to go to another bank and they needed a lot of documents. At that time, I didn't have those documents. So I had to turn down the, the business. After some time, I got another again. So I decided I'll try another bank. 
they told me this story is very crucial to go to the manager. So the manager talked to me and told me we can go to your workshop and see if you are saying the truth. So they came and saw everything and told me if you will manage to do the work in time, we'll give you the money, like 250000 And I did it. We spoke to Miriam Wambui, an HR consultant in Kenya. I actually have seen a lot of transformation with the people that I have interacted with. I have seen people who have gone into side hustles, which they thought were side hustles, and they have completely gone out of employment and they have pursued those. I have one uh, young man, actually not one, but two now, who are into food business. So they joined hands. They thought initially that the biggest problem or challenge they had was funding. And we agreed that funding wasn't the issue. The issue was how do we use the social platforms, like digital platforms, to sell our eggs. We can find eggs, but we don't know how to sell it. They opened a digital platform, so they sell eggs from the village on digital platform. And the people in town are buying those eggs. So recently they then called me and told me, oh, so now we have bought two motorbikes. Now we are able to fetch the eggs from the village and bring them to Nairobi. So they are looking to grow that. They'll grow it. They'll buy a pickup. The next time they'll need a truck. So it's doable. BFA Global and its fibre program has honed in on these types of MSEs. Through studies like the Kenya Financial Diaries, as well as their research with a company called Well-Told Story, they've mapped out the economics of the informal sector in Kenya. As a result, they're starting to get a good picture of what these businesses need and how internet penetration and platforms change the game. Here's Michelle Hassan, BFA Global Country Manager in the Nairobi office. MSC actually stands for micro and small enterprises, but people define it based on either if number of employees you have and also like the turnover that you might have. So if you have less than one or two employees, then you're considered micro. And then if you have between three to five employees, you're considering like small enterprises. I think the informal sector in Africa is about 70%. A lot of businesses are small and they're not registered with the government well Told Story is home to the Shoe Jazz youth media platform, an online community of 2.3 million young Kenyans. Well Told Story and BFA Global applied machine learning to anonymised messages and texts to interpret and identify who among the fan base showed a mindset to grow in their choice of language and interests. By predicting youths who could be high-potential hustlers, Well-Told Story could offer the kinds of services and loans that entrepreneurial youths need to pursue their desire to grow. So Well-Told Story are a um, comic book. So every time they run their comic book, they have an engagement and say, oh, if you want to talk, text a number and then they interact. So based on that interaction, they're able to get a lot of data points from different people. And especially because a lot of the young people call themselves hustlers, they wanted to find out, is there a way we can be able to highlight and say, this is a hustler, but also this person is likely to succeed in businesses. So they are actually in the trajectory of growing. A hustler is a self-employed person and often quite young. The hustle helps him or her earn money on the side, but for those who are unemployed or underemployed, it's a way to make ends meet. The work is oftentimes informal and provides a service or a product in a more convenient way to a local or niche customer. BFU has been working in the MSME sector in Kenya for a while now. So in 2012, in the Kenya Financial Diaries, we were able to 
track a um, couple of households that were businesses for a period of a year and a half. And from that, we were able to understand like what are the challenges business are facing, what's the income business are having coming from informal to formal and what that fear the merchants have. Last year, two years ago, we decided let's dig deeper under the fiber program to better understand the merchant ecosystem within Kenya. So we interviewed a few merchants in three informal sites in Kenya to understand like what are the challenges. And this was interesting because we were able to understand what the life cycle of a shop is. To start a business, you've got to be a hustler. And the first rule of hustling is get the money. Once they start growing, they borrow money from either savings group or friends, and we see them growing to a bigger shop. Friends, family, a fool and his money, it doesn't matter. You're a business owner and you've got things to do and people to see. But first, you've got startup costs. You need products to sell. You need equipment to make things. And your office, it's got to look nice. Not so big, but at least $200. Then they're able to create this shop. Then now that they see they're doing well, They want to expand. So it's at this phase that we saw a challenge. Like this is a point where either a business thrives or a business fails. The second rule is you got to spend money to make money. But growth means more cost and more cost means more risk. And this can be because of things like they opened quickly. They never thought about rent. This is just small space I'm renting. But now you have to figure out I need to pay rent every month. And it's also like in case something happens within the family, they get money away from the shop to the family and then they lose their businesses. It's this part of the life cycle of a small business that can get really hairy. For a small business owner, separating business from personal can be nearly impossible. So we saw a lot of shops dropping out from being a shop and starting back again to zero and starting that whole cycle. But the few that were able to sustain themselves and able to have the right skills, so them expanding and coming to this phase, which I kind of call it stability phase. And this is where they're just happy, making enough money to sustain their businesses and little money to just save, especially female merchants. Being in that phase where their husband is like having another business, so this is just like a side hustle. They were happy just being in this phase as long as possible. Okay, so not every hustler needs to own the block. To some, the beauty of being a small business owner is that you wrest control of your own destiny in a way, and that you can empower yourself towards that elusive, upward mobility. As they say, fortune favours the bold. One of Fibre's goals was to find ways to help these dreamers have the opportunity to take their shot. But we also saw a few people are very entrepreneurial because now they wanted access more money and they know the only way to be able to access money then they need to actually expand through a bank. So they'll start keeping records, having employees so that they're able to actually grow. So from that just life cycle of a shop, we kept on seeing different needs and different financial needs for the shop owners. We visited one of the hustlers who is an active member on the Facebook group that Well Told Story has created for young entrepreneurs to share ideas and resources. He has a small one-room shop on the outskirts of Nairobi where he runs several businesses. Hello, hello. My name is Simon and I'm a businessman and entrepreneur. I was uh, employed at a job. I decided to start up my own business and it was a challenging but I had a passion in photography. I saved my money that I worked for in the white-collar job, like 200 every day. And then in a year I took a loan. I bought some machines. So I decided to start the shop because I saw there was need to have a cyber. People were going a long distance to photocopy, to print. 
I do marketing through Facebook and WhatsApp. I post the information that has details of what I do. I send to my clients. It is very effective because uh, before they come to the shop, they ask and then uh, they get to know if I have the services they want. I love to expand my business, maybe to get new cameras, advance my machines, but that would cost me because I need funds or to do some saving, yeah, so that I may reach that goal. When you request for a loan in a bank, you have to have people who will sign in for you so that they may support that loan, so that you may get the loan. Yeah, that was also a challenge. Here's SokerWatch CEO Daniel Yu again. His company's been focusing on ways to give access to credit to these micro-businesses. Right now, informal merchants are really limited by their working capital. And so as a result, their ability to buy and stock goods is really capped by how much value they've invested in the goods on the shelf. And the real challenge is that with these informal businesses, there really isn't much of a distinction between business finance and between personal finance. So what you find is that when shopkeepers have an emergency, they need to pay for a hospital bill, or maybe they need to pay school tuition. They actually end up taking money from the business, from the value of these goods, and then putting that into that emergency situation. What happens then can often be this negative cycle where a shopkeeper has taken money out from the goods that would otherwise be sitting on the shelf, and now their shelves get more and more empty. And so they end up with fewer and fewer customers coming and buying goods from them, which just reinforces that cycle of needing to take more and more money out of the business until eventually the shop has to close down. And really with SokoWatch, what we aim to do is provide the opposite incentive, whereby we now allow merchants to stock their shelves even more than they were able to do before. And through that line of credit, they're now stocking more, which is bringing more customers, more traffic to their store, allowing them to get a higher turnover of goods, then reinvest more into their working capital, into stocking their shelves and growing their businesses, and ultimately getting them out of any type of cycle that would lead to the close of the business. Through working with SokoWatch, we've been able to reduce costs for merchants. On average, we reduce the cost of sourcing goods by about 15% for the shopkeeper. And on top of that, we've given them the financial freedom to grow their business. On average, what that allows a merchant to do after paying their overheads is instead of taking home 3 to $5 a day, getting that more than doubled up to closer to $10 a day. And for us, you know, if we're able to unlock the potential within the ecosystem and help merchants who didn't have any access to formal services, didn't have any access to finances before that grow, then that's the difference between a community who is paying more for their rice right now than what U.S. citizens pay for their rice going to grocery stores in the U.S. and actually bringing it to a level of affordability that allows them to improve the quality of their life. MSEs are largely small and informal businesses, mostly physical, in-person shops. And as small mom-and-pop shops, they struggle to manage the day-to-day of getting customers, keeping shelves stocked, and managing their cash flows. Now they're also going online to digital platforms to find cheaper products, to restock their shelves faster, and to access business credit that wasn't available to them before. But for many, the digital platforms and products are a lot to learn, and there are new risks. BFA Global's work with Fibre focused on these MSE owners. Here's Ash Amin, Principal Data Scientist on the project, talking more about his work and financial inclusion. 
Micro and small enterprises do have difficulty accessing credit within the communities that they operate in, and one could think of them as a missing middle in terms of a credit gap. So as a practitioner, this is certainly one of the things that is very frustrating, almost infuriating, because you see this clear demand. Folks will put it at almost close to a trillion dollars, depending on how you're counting, and there are almost 100 million institutions that could benefit from this kind of funding. Now, one of the reasons that this really doesn't seem to happen well is because financial institutions at the end of the day have to provide risk-adjusted credit. They're looking for risk-adjusted rewards. And the reality is that a lot of these micro-enterprises are risky. And not a lot of it is because of the micro-entrepreneur themselves. Part of it could be, right? It's the first time doing it. It's a business they haven't engaged in before. But just by the very nature of it being a business, as we know, 50% of startups will fail in their first year. The numbers are not as acute for micro-enterprises, but there was a recent World Bank paper, for example, that said up to 25-30% of small businesses will fail in the first few years. It's not just also a matter of the internal riskiness, but it's also the question of servicing these loans, right? So let's take an assumption where a business requires $1,000 microenterprise and you have a large industry requiring a million dollars. The amount of effort that goes into dispersing a $1,000 loan is not one thousandth that of a million dollar loan. It could be a tenth of the work, but dollar for dollar, a smaller loan is also therefore much more expensive. So what we have is a more risky situation, which is more expensive to service compared to, on a per dollar basis, other types of funding that you could do, which are much less risky and much less expensive. So for a financial institution, the risk-reward profile really has to make sense for you to go into this uncharted territory. And the reality is that for pretty much all brick-and-mortar institutions, it just doesn't. What we're seeing now is essentially a lot of institutions going very heavily into the retail sector. So they will offer individuals credit, short-term credit, often working capital, often at fairly high rates, right? Amshwari used to be 7.5% in Kenya per month. Now you have Tala and Branch. Branch is on a sliding scale. Tala is 15% flat per month. One could argue that if you are a small enough micro-enterprise owner or you're a hustler, you are actually using that for your business case. Is it expensive? Yes. Is it very expensive? Yes, it is very expensive. However, it is also providing credit in a situation which otherwise just did not exist. You also have some other interesting and innovative approaches that are coming out of Kenya again, for example, where KCB has pushed this product called Jaza Duka. It is to the Duka owners. Dukas are the small shops where by combining digital lending with data analytics and partnering with the MasterCard worldwide initiatives, they are able to actually open up credit to a whole segment of micro-entrepreneurs that it was not possible before. So we are seeing some pushing of the envelope, but there's a long way to go when it comes to actually serving the micro-enterprises. And it's not entirely clear if digital credit itself is sufficient or some of these other structural cost barriers and risk barriers also need to be addressed. So from an MSE perspective, perhaps one advantage is that, say, 10 years ago, my options were pretty much the same as they had been for decades. Today, there is perhaps a new digitalized option along those lines, but the basis on which they operate still hasn't changed a great deal. However, from an evolution standpoint, 
It might be just one element of a broader digital evolution whereby the tools that I'm using as an MSc didn't exist 10 years ago that might actually help me either get digital uh, lending sources or bricks and mortar lending sources to pay more attention to me. Interventions like Jazaduka with KCB, they're certainly relying on the digital footprint that are relevant to the firm, but that are in the hands of the supply chain. And those could be used for credit decisions. But I think for some of the more innovative approaches on how MSEs could be serviced, we can actually look east. We can look at some of the things that are happening in China, for example, for a while now, and particularly at the likes of Alipay. One of the reasons that Alipay really took off initially was they solved a problem we haven't touched on yet, trust. We talked about capability, we talked about financing and all of that, but at the end of the day, I need to know that when I sell you something, you are going to pay me back. If we live in the same neighborhood, fool me once, but the second time I'm not going to make the same mistake. But if you live in a different state and you are supplying many people only once, it becomes a very big problem. So what Alipay basically did was they collected the payment first from the buyer, held it in escrow when the goods or services were delivered by the supplier, and the buyer confirmed that it had been done, the funding from the escrow was released. So they were essentially working like a line of credit or something like that on an international transaction, but essentially solving the trust problem. So that tells us two things. So one is that you can have these digital intermediaries, which are then taking over the role that a formal financial institution typically would in a market where things are more set up, but they're also solving for problems such as trust, which we often just take for granted, but that that are real challenges in a lot of these environments. Is there a risk to these new approaches to MSE lending, such as over-indebtedness? We have seen a chronic level of over-indebtedness in Mexico, for example. One would think we would know how to avoid it. I think the reality is that a lot of these systems, they're similar to previous systems, but they're different enough where it is very challenging to know exactly when those lines are crossed, often because regulators need to provide a sandbox-like environment for a lot of these innovations to be born and thrive, but it's the same kind of environment, the same kind of lack of regulatory restrictions that allow for a runaway train of over-indebtedness to sort of plow through communities and do a lot of damage before someone really hits the brakes hard. So are there ways to insulate the vulnerable? Or is it, as you were saying, that something where regulators just basically have to say, you know what, people are going to fail, we have to leave them the room to do that. Unfortunately, there's a you know acceptable rate of failure before we then see what the the boundaries for regulation should be. It's a difficult balance to strike, right? As as we were just saying, you know, allowing innovation enough space or enough freedom of innovation to occur while at the same time not allowing too much damage to happen in the sandbox before things are put into check. This is where the role of third-party institutions really become important, for example, where you know the regulator has a certain systemic view that they need to look out for. The financial institutions have a primarily a profit bottom line motive. So it really has to be an industry-wide effort. You know, everybody has a role to play. I think as BFA, we see our role as being a uh, glorified translator in some ways. We work with incumbents, we work with fintechs, we work with customers. And the goal is to make sure that there is enough information shared and everyone is aware enough to make the best decision given the information available at hand. So what are we left with after considering all these perspectives and experiences? 
Can a side hustle be the seed of a true small business or a new career? Or will it remain just a piece of a bigger livelihoods puzzle for people trying to make ends meet? We know the challenge remains the same, and in fact is growing. Small businesses can't find the credit they need to find a foothold or to grow from their initial base. You heard Ash from BFA Global mention that the credit gap facing micro and small enterprises could be as much as one trillion US dollars. The risk assessment approach that is the foundation of the traditional banking approach to lending remains in force, and many MSEs still struggle to show the track record or collateral to win over these risk-wary lenders. However, as Fibre has found, there have been changes, and while they're not yet full-blown solutions, maybe they're paving the way to a new path to credit. Firstly, internet penetration is bringing information and connections to MSE owners at a tremendous pace. They're learning more than ever before about what they need to do and why. Secondly, there are more lenders to pitch to. Digitization, the central plank underlying Fibre's approach to its research and development work, is delivering new lending options through various online and app platforms. They're still costly, given they remain anchored in a risk-based approach. But greater competition and better insight into business data might just begin to reduce those lending rates over time. Finally, there are now a host of internet and phone-based apps to help MSEs better manage their businesses and in turn create the track record, that trail of invoices and receipts that banks and other lenders are looking for to offer loans at better rates. The people pursuing the side hustle are driven by a desire to better their lives and they're looking for the support they need to turn a skill, a niche or any advantage into a true business and a livelihood. And there are signs that their fight might get easier thanks to these developments. MSEs are huge drivers of the economy in Africa as they are in all other parts of the world. So the success of these platform-enabled small businesses stands to not only impact local commerce by deepening the marketplace, but can also have major economic implications for Africa. Until next time.